Well, good morning, church. Thank you so much for joining us on our online worship experience. Just a reminder that you will find all of the information that you need regarding sermon notes or other resources in the text below this video. If you're able to and you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. In the beginning of Genesis, we can clearly see that God is busy forming the world as we know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness and day from night. Then God made the sky, and he proceeded to make the land, which separated all the waters on earth. And God stepped back when it was finished, and he saw that it was good. Then God created all the vegetation, all the plants and the fruits, and all the things that sprout up and grow. God created the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. And then he made the stars and he placed them in the sky. And when it was all said and done, he looked back and he said that it was good. And then God created the fish for the waters and the animals for the land. And he created all the little animals that scurry along the ground. And when it was all over and done with, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that God rested. Now, the rest didn't last long because after he rested, he went back to work. God needed a man to be able to cultivate the soil, to be able to take care of his creation. So in Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust in the ground. He breathed life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And in verse 8, God created a special place for this man to live. If you look with me in Genesis 2, 8 and 9, it says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in, the Eden, in Eden in the east, and there he placed a man that he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up around the garden, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After God placed man in the garden, he gave man a set of ground rules. But it wasn't really a, a set of rules per se. It was more just kind of like a single rule. Genesis uh, 2 verses 15 through 17. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. After God said this to Adam, he looked over what he had created and he said to himself, something's missing. In verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. He took a portion of the man's side and he created woman. And it was awesome. And woman was happy and man was happy and God was happy and everybody was content. Everything was actually perfect. In Genesis 2.25 it says, now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Why did they feel no shame? Because it was perfect. It was exactly the way that God intended it. And I gave you this recap of what is happening in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because I need you to understand that God created this place for us and his intention was for it to be absolute and his intention was for it to be perfect and his intention was for there to never be sin or shame or hurt or anger or frustration or doubt or worry or any of those things. And it absolutely was until the beginning of chapter 3. And that's where the enemy steps onto the scene 
and the wheels actually kind of fall off. Let's read it together. This is going to be our text for the rest of the, uh, our time together. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. It says this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the God, Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 7, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. There is so much going on in those seven verses that I'm afraid that you might have missed a few things. And so in the time that we have remaining, I want to unpack these verses a little bit because I believe there's some pretty important things in there. We are wrapping up our summer series this weekend. This will be the last of the questions. And it's been a great series where we have taken the questions that we find in the Bible and we pick them apart a little bit. We chew on them. We kind of dive into them and we take the lessons that we learn. We take the answers because sometimes we answer those questions ourselves. We take the answers we find. We take the lessons we learn and we apply it to our life. And that's exactly what the, uh, what the series was intended to do. Today I'm actually bringing you the very first recorded question in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, the first time that there's actually a question for us to read. And it's brought to us by none other himself than Satan. Did God really say? Now, I hope and pray that in the next few moments that your eyes will be open to a couple of things. First, I, I hope that you understand that the enemy is very crafty. The enemy is very shrewd. And he very much wants nothing more than to derail your walk with God. And the other thing that I hope that you hear is that I hear that there is a fight for us to fight. There is something that we can do. We can set our feet on the path. We can set our eyes on the Lord. We can guard our heart. And we can fight against this temptation. The enemy, the serpent, came and tempted Eve and Adam in the garden and the, t and the enemy is, is actually tempting you and I today. And we need to be made aware of it. We need to know what we can do about it. And so in our time remaining, we're going to talk about temptation and the negative effects that it has on our relationship with God. So let's just jump right into it. Write this down for point number one. Temptation diminishes our view of God. If you look back to chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now I want you to, no to notice just a couple of things here. Number one is this. Eve was actually in her safe place. This was the garden, this is what God intended for her. She was there in the place God had made for her, doing exactly what God had asked of her. 
It is one thing for us to be tempted when we wander off the path or when we kind of, you know, put our nose in places that it doesn't belong. That's one thing. We kind of expect to run into the enemy, to run into the serpent, to be tempted. But it's something completely different when we're in the house that he has created for us, doing the will that he has asked us to do, and just serving and glorifying him. The enemy still came to Eve and found her in that safe haven. The other thing that I want you to notice is this. The enemy started very, very subtly, very small. He didn't pull Eve over and go, hey, Eve, I need to tell you something. There is no God. He didn't do that because that would be, she would be appalled. She would absolutely see right through that. What the enemy did was he started very subtly. Hey, Eve, I need to ask you, did God really say? And it started a conversation that led her down a rabbit trail that she could not recover from. Now, up until this point, Eve never questioned what God had said. She was absolutely content with the instructions that the Lord had given her. And why wouldn't she be? He was God. He was the creator. He was Yahweh. And what he said was an absolute truth. And she never doubted that. She was 100% content with being obedient. The question, the temptation that the serpent asked of her, diminished the authority of God for the very first time in her life. And make no mistake about it, that was the intent behind the question, to diminish her view of God. When you and I are tempted, when we entertain temptation in our life, it causes us to begin to question God's authority. Temptation causes us to question God's holiness. It causes us to to begin to doubt God's sovereignty in our life. And it leads us down the road where if we begin to question this and question that, we all of a sudden start questioning everything in our life. It almost starts this chain reaction or this rabbit trail, if you will. I don't know about you, but I've, I've gone down this trail many times in my life where I begin to question this and it leads me to questioning that and I remember saying things like, is, is God really unchanging? Did God really say that he's unchanging? Did God really say that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because there's a lot of things in this book that are really controversial. There's a lot of things in this book that are really socially unacceptable right now. And I need to understand, I need to be 100% clear, did God really say that he's unchanging? I've asked questions before, and maybe you have too. Did, did God really say that he's that I'm supposed to forgive the way that he forgives me? Because if God would only look at my circumstances and if God would only remember what that person did to me or what they said or how they put that knife in my back, there's no way that God could be asking me to forgive the way that he forgives me. Did God really say that? Or, or what about, did God really ask me to be holy because he's holy? Is God really expecting me to strive for perfection, to strive for holiness, to strive to have no sin in my life? Is that what he's asking me to do? Because number one, it's unrealistic. And number two, it seems a little legalistic. Is God really asking me to be holy? When you start to go down this rabbit trail, you can see what I'm talking about where that one little question, did God really stay, uh, did God really say, starts to unravel a whole lot of things in my life. And when I let my mind wander like this, I unknowingly begin to diminish the God of the Bible and who God is in my life. And it starts innocently enough 
But then the more I go down this road, the more the wheels begin to fall off. Now, I need you to hear me this morning. Am I saying, or this afternoon, this evening, whenever it is you're watching this, am I saying that it's not okay to question God? Nope. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I I need you to hear that the exact opposite is true. It is okay to chew on God's scripture. It's okay to say, hey, God, help me here. Holy Spirit, help me. I don't understand what it is you're asking me to do. It is okay to to throw your hands up and say, God, I don't get it. That's a really healthy thing in our life, and it encourages growth. It encourages us to grow roots that are deep questioning and wrestling and struggling and kind of learning for yourself, those are all really, really good things. The danger lies when we begin to add to or take away or manipulate what it is that God actually did say. That's when things become dangerous. And both the enemy, the serpent, and Eve in our Genesis 3 story, they both did the exact same thing. Let's read it together. Again, Chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now see, the serpent actually changed what God said. It was so sly, it was so subtle that maybe you didn't even notice it. But he said, did God really say that we can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And that's exactly the opposite of what God said. God actually came and said, you can have it all except for this one thing. All of this belongs to you. Just don't do this one thing. But that's not what the enemy said to Eve. The serpent came and he tried to twist what God was saying. And he said, did God really say we can't have any of this? Genesis 3.1 tells us that the serpent is the craftiest of all and and that this is one of his go-to schemes to twist what God is actually saying. And he can trip us up and confuse us by twisting things. When he does that, he accomplishes what he set out to do. But Eve caught it. She caught it. She recognized it. And she called him out on it. In verse 2, it says, Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will surely die. Did you catch what Eve did? Eve added her opinion. She added two what God had said. God never said that they weren't supposed to touch it. If you remember back in Genesis 2, God said, hey, here's the deal. This place is for you and all these trees have at it. It all belongs to you because I want you to have life and have it more abundantly. It's perfect. I've created all of it for you. Just don't do this one thing. He said, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. But when Eve told the serpent, She added the whole, we can't even touch it. Now, I don't know if Eve meant to do it. I don't know if it was just a slip and if it was innocent, but I will tell you this. I know that many, many times in my life, and I can assume many times in your life, that we do this exact same thing. See, it's very tempting for us to add our own agenda or to add our perspective to what God is asking. Sometimes we do it without even knowing it. Sometimes we actually are intentional about it because we're trying to create God in our image instead of us being created in his image. And this is what I mean by that. 
See, it's a lot easier for me to serve a God that thinks like me, talks like me, acts like me, has the same opinions of me. And if I can take what he says and I can, I can twist it just a little bit to kind of fit my agenda or I can twist it just a little bit to fit my perspective, then that's a way easier God for me to serve than the God of the Bible, the God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you're a follower of God, it's not a question of if the serpent will tempt you. It's a question of when. And you need to know that. And this can all seem very overwhelming and very daunting. You could be asking the question, well, why do we even try if Satan's always going to win and he's always going to be there and he's never going to go away? This is all so daunting. I mean, is there anything that I can do? And I need you to hear today that there absolutely is something that you can do. There is a strategy. There is a way out. You have the promise as a believer of the Holy Spirit to walk alongside of you. And, and I need you to understand that Satan cannot touch what God, what the Holy Spirit, what the Son can do. Satan can't even compare. He can't attack God. So he's going to attack the next best thing. He's going to come after one of God's followers. But see, Satan can't, he, he can't mess with God. And so there is something that you can do. That Holy Spirit will come alongside of you, will strengthen you. And then here's the deal. You have a two-edged sword right here to fight off any temptation that the enemy can bring. One of the first things that we can do is we can, uh, we can hide God's word in our heart. Listen to what it says in Psalms 119. 1 through 11. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all of their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. They have changed us, or you have charged us, to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life to your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Listen to verse 9, 10, and 11. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I love verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we hide God's word in our heart, the enemy cannot easily diminish our view of God. The question, did God really say, almost becomes ineffective because we know exactly what God said. We've hidden his word in our heart. Write this down for number two. Temptation downplays sin's consequences. Again, verse two, chapter three. Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse four, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Remember when we talked about earlier in the message how the serpent started very small, very subtly, and then, and then the, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the longer we let him hang around, the more he is tempting, the more that we allow him, instead of using the sword and, and shutting it down right then, the more we allow him to linger, the more bold he gets. Here he flat out, says the exact opposite, downplays 
what God had said. And in verse four, he says, you won't die. The enemy loves to tell you that your sin is not a big deal. The enemy loves to help you downplay or justify your sin. Listen to what he says to Eve in verse five. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. You know what he's saying to Eve here? He's saying, Eve, it's, it's not as important as life and death. I know that God might have said that, but the truth of the matter is it's not that important. He's downplaying. He's wanting you to get off of what God really says. And then he actually helps you justify. He helped her justify. And what he's saying is this. Listen, God doesn't want you to do it because he wants to keep his thumb on you. He wants to take away your joy. He doesn't want you to be like him because he knows that as soon as you eat it, You're going to have the knowledge that he has, and God doesn't want that for you. God wants to keep his thumb on you, Eve. I don't know about you, but I don't need any help downplaying or justifying my sin. I do that really, really well all by myself. And the reason I do that is because I'm human. The reason I do that is because I have this sin nature inside of me. The reason I do that is because down deep at my core, I am a selfish person. And what I really want is to put me first. And and that's a battle that that we've all struggled with and will, will continue to keep struggling with, saying to myself, God, not what I want, but what you want. And Satan, one of his biggest schemes is to come in and downplay that. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 26, Jesus actually tells us one of the things that we need to remember. He's talking to his disciples and he says this. Then he said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean, take up your cross? Well, when Jesus went to die for our sins on the hill, he was carrying his cross. They made him take up his cross and walk it up the hill to die for our sins. And what he's saying right here is that if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to take up your cross. You have to be willing to say, I'm willing to die to me and say yes to you. I'm willing to say no to what I want and I'm willing to say yes to what you want. He goes on and explains that exact thing in verse 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? Church, the biggest lie that the enemy is trying to tell you, trying to feed you right now, is that your sin is no big deal and that God loves you so much that he's willing to turn the other cheek. But that's a lie. Your sin is a big deal and it's a big deal because of two reasons. Number one, it robs God of his glory. And number two, it robs you of your joy. Sin robs God of of his glory. See, God's will for your life is not necessarily to be a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or a mom or any of those things. Those are all things God wants you to do as you're fulfilling his will. God's will for your life is that you would live life in such a way that when people saw you, they saw him. That, That your life would glorify him in everything that you do. And sin robs God of that glory. Because God in sin, he's so holy he can't be around it. 
Sin robs God of his glory. Sin also robs you of your joy, and you need to understand that. And what I mean by that is this. True obedience, if you stop and you think about it and you consider it, true obedience is found, or true joy is found in obedience. That's when we're the most happy, the most content, the most satisfied. Because when I experience that joy that is, that is based out of me doing what God has asked me to do, that joy will carry me in the good times and it will also carry me in the bad times. That joy is not conditional to my circumstances. And that's what we're looking for in this life. True joy and sin Sin that is unchanged or unchecked or, or unrepented or sin that is just lingering in our life, sin that we continue to keep downplaying, it separates us from the joy that God is desiring to give us. Don't let the serpent downplay the consequences of sin in your life. Write this down for number three. Temptation elevates me over him. Temptation elevates me over him. Verse four, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Verse six, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was, was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it, and at that moment, their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame. At their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together. I need you to highlight, circle, underline, get into your copy of God's word, put three big circles around the fact that it said, and she wanted. Guys, that's the end game right there. That right there in and of itself is why the enemy is poking and prodding and questioning and constantly antagonizing and constantly hanging around because the end game is for you to be able to say, I want it. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you desire. I want this. And when the enemy can get you to say that, he's done. He accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish. He's removed God's will in, his, in your life, God's wants in your life, and he's replaced them with your will, with your way, with your desires, with your heart. And once he's done that, he's won. So, how do we go about safeguarding ourselves against this destructive mindset that says, elevating me over him? Again, we have to go back to God's word. It all goes back to this weapon that God has given us. Proverbs 4, 20 and 27. My child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart for they bring life to those who find them and healing to the whole body. Verse 23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Avoid perverse talk, stay away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a path for your feet and stay on that path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. How do we keep our eyes focused on God and God alone? How do we make sure that we can put him first and foremost every single time in our life? We guard our heart from the schemes of the enemy. We mark out a path and we do everything we can do to keep our feet and our eyes and our mind on that path. And it's easier said than it is done. 
Some of the things that we can do to help us with that is be in our word constantly, consistently chewing on it. Maybe it's two or three verses. Maybe it's two or three chapters. Maybe it's two or three books at a time. Who knows? But you got to be in God's word. Number two, you got to be around people that believe and want and desire the same things that you want. You got to get yourself connected, not only to a church, but to a small group, to a Bible study. You've got to be around people that will encourage you and elevate you and, and, and kind of give you, you know, we, uh, wind under your wings to kind of continue this process. You've got to pray. These are nothing new. These aren't things that I'm telling you that you're like, wow, I never thought of that. They're the basic things that help us continue to take one step closer. We got we to gotta pray. And it blows me away how many times I talk to people that are saying, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I, 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 I'm floundering. I, I, and I'm like, have you prayed about it? No, I haven't. Why? I don't know. We got to be in our word. We got to surround ourselves with people. We have to repay. Or we have to pray. And then we repeat it, we repeat it, we repeat it. I'm going to close with this. When you continue reading in chapter 3, I think it's down around verses 8 or 9, you will see that after Eve took the fruit and she gave some to her husband, it says that, that the Lord himself came to the garden in the cool of the evening. <laughs> when you stop and think about it, this, this blows me away because this is the way God created it to be, right? A perfect environment where there was no sin, no shame, no hurt, no nothing. And, and, and God created us for fellowship. And in verse 8 and 9, it says that God came to the garden to look for them. And he couldn't find them because they were hiding. So God called out for him, and when he finally found Adam, he asked Adam, he said, why are you hiding from me? And Adam actually said, I was hiding from you because I was naked and I was full of shame. And in verse 11, God says something so powerful, and I want to leave it with you today. God looked at Adam and he said, who told you you were naked? Who told you? And church, I just want to leave you with God's words this morning. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you weren't good enough? Who told you that tomorrow wouldn't be better? Who told you that you would never measure up? Who told you that you were used goods? Who told you you were too damaged? Who told you that God was ashamed of you? Who told you? See, the problem is this. When the enemy comes and he asks the question, did God really say? If we don't hide God's word in our heart, if we don't have an answer for that, it leads us down a road where he can tell us anything he wants to tell us and we'll believe it. And guys, that's just not an option. Who told you? My hope, my prayer is that right now, in your car, in your living room, later in your closet, in your bedroom when you close the door. I pray that if you have to have a conversation with God to get things back on track, to get your feet back on that path, your eyes fixed on him, if you need to have a conversation with God, my hope and my prayer is that you will do that. Because God says a lot of things in here about you, things like you're precious and you're his child, and you are chosen, and things like that he has your tomorrows in his hand, and things like he knows the plans that he has for you, and things like he will never leave you and never forsake you, and you can never, ever 
not be loved or wanted. And I hope and pray that you have that conversation. I hope and pray that you and God can have a talk. Let's pray. Lord, temptation is such a difficult thing for us to walk through. It beats us down. It sometimes makes us feel overwhelmed. Help us, Lord, to hide your word in our heart. Encourage us. Give us strength and stamina. Help us to fix our feet on your path and not wander away from it. Help us to understand and know exactly what you have said. Father, I love you and I thank you. And I ask these things in your holy and precious son's name. Amen. Church, thank you so much for being with us this weekend. I hope and pray you have a fantastic weekend and I hope you come back next weekend and join us again. God bless you.